This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, baby. Hello, baby. Hello, baby. Today. <laughs> Welcome to Season 2, Episode Two of Brown Baby Podcast with this week's guest Ben Bailey Smith. I don't know why I said it in that weird way. I'm your host Nick Shukla, and I have spent the day perfecting my Larry David impression in a rare empty house, a rare rare empty house. I think you can hear from my strained voice how hard I've been practicing and I must say that the impression is now pretty, 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 pretty bad. Still, it's, it's still pretty bad. So this is a podcast about parenting and each week I ask the question, how do we raise our kids to be joyful in bleak times that make us so sad and angry? And each week I don't just sit here fighting myself with existential dread about that very question i invite a parent on to chat to me about their journey how they're navigating their tricky times with these kids of theirs how to have big important conversations and how to still have fun and enjoy the world this is a hopeful podcast about parenting it's inspired by my memoir brown baby a memoir of race family and home which is out now it's been out since february please please buy a copy i don't care where you buy a copy as long as it's a legal copy, not a pirate copy. I mean, why would you pay for a pirate copy? Surely, like... Anyway, what I'm trying to say is, please buy the book. I don't care where you get it from. Get it from the A-site. Get it from a big chain. Get it from a supermarket. If you find it in a supermarket, just get it, please. I'd love for you to get it. Before I introduce this week's guest, all I am going to do is just... Um, tell you about ways of supporting the podcast which is free I record it myself I edit it myself I promote it myself I upload it myself and I'd love some support man so yeah buy the book that's one way you can support the podcast buy my book and also buy Ben Bailey Smith's book uh, the uh, through the bookshop.org affiliate link that's in the show notes there's also an Acast supporter function where you can support the show or just tell a friend. Shout about us on the internet, rate us five stars, subscribe, tell other people to get the books or even just get them from the library if if you're not able to purchase them. That's also cool. So yes, as I said, this week I bring you Ben Bailey Smith, the rapper, the actor, the writer known as Doc Brown. Ben has been a legend on the UK rap scene for decades, an actor popping up in places like Law & Order UK, 
Des, the Split, Four O'Clock Club. He is a stand-up and he is now a writer of hilarious kids' books like the recently released Something I Said, which is a hilarious book um, about a 13-year-old boy called Carmichael Taylor who goes viral when he makes fun of his family. It's really, really funny. And I urge you to read it if you have kids with a sense of humor or if you want to read a book that'll make you laugh while you read your kids read with your kids get this book it's brilliant we spoke about ben writing lyrics for snoop dogg yes he wrote the justy advert lyrics uh that's a i don't know if you've spoken about it publicly since we've recorded but uh he speaks about it on this uh he talks about being a dad of daughters who are way more progressive than him his childhood community routines with his big sister zadie smith my personal hero zadie smith hopefully future guest of the podcast zadie smith podcast podcast i mean if zadie smith is listening to this thinking should i go on this idiot's podcast and she just heard me mispronounce the word podcast she's probably thinking nah anyway he also talks about his early years on the rap battle scene, which is where I first came across him. I love Ben. I've been a fan since his days hosting an open mic at Deal Real Records in central London that I was always way too scared to jump up on. And I'm glad I didn't because as time has told, I wasn't a very good rapper. I think he's a great, hilarious, warm hearted guy. We talk about so much uh, stuff. You know, he has a really wonderful message about laughter and about love at the end. And I, I just, it filled my heart with joy. The sound quality is a little wonky in places because it was one of those recordings where I had to just take the Zoom recording rather than our individual recordings for various technical reasons. I'm sorry about that. Hopefully the content and Ben is a warm and generous enough of a guest to just help you get past that i just thought i'd be honest and transparent and warn you now whoa this has been going on a very long time this intro great okay season two episode two brown baby podcast ben bailey smith let's go and uh and nikesh there's there's no rush i've got like two hours to kill now because i've got a medical to go to and um so there's no rush out okay um i've got a rush because i've got to do um oh, right. i've got to do the school run at three um okay being, being, the, yeah, being yeah. a dad and all that yeah, um yeah, no worries cool well welcome to the podcast ben how are you doing yeah i'm good man like it's it's one of those periods of my life that is uh is is very manic i suppose it's probably predictably manic to, to people who know me who think i'm doing a billion things at once and I, I never really am i just uh I do different things at different times and then things come out at the same time and people are like, Oh my God, you do like this, you do that, you do this, how you do, you know, actually I tend to do one thing at a time, but today is one of those days where I'm having to do a lot of different things in one day, which I do find stressful because I'm not a multitasker (laughs) despite appearances, you know? (laughs) So, so last year when the, when the pandemic hit and I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm imagining like me, you're one of those, parents who's like there's so much going on often you have to do stuff at night or go away for for an evening or just yeah. like work yeah. 12 hour days that start at two and go on until the evening and stuff and so you end up doing all of your parenting at the weekends in like intense bursts when you're really really tired and stuff yeah did you find that did you find that just being at home all the time did you find that a fruitful time for you or did you find that really difficult um i think the the, the simple answer to that is both um but there's more complexity behind it because um i was already contracted to 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 write a novel for bloomsbury which i I was really 
sort of scared about because I've never done it before. Um, and before the first lockdown, before I even knew what COVID was, uh, I was thinking, how am I going to do I mean, just finding the time's going to be difficult. You know, I was doing a lot of filming and shooting takes up so much of your time each day. And then obviously, yeah, my kids and, and uh, I just moved house. And I just had a lot going on. I thought, when am I going to do it? You know, so when the lockdown happened, it for me, it was a godsend to, to suddenly have all this time. And I was on two shoots. They both went down. Um, so I was just it was like this God given chunk of time. But the reason I say it was both is because being handed the time was like now there's no excuse which I found like I found that a hugely pressurizing position to be in um but eventually you know just that time ticking down towards the the day of delivering the first draft um which was in uh, I think the middle of the summer last year 2020 you know it pressure is good for me like it forces me to work so like Every morning, I'd just, you know, I'd get up, make sure the kids were all right. And then I'd go up to my little office and um, just hope that something came out. And some days it didn't, some days it did. And the days that it didn't, I, try, I just tried not to be too mean to myself. You know, I just tried to be gentle and say, look, you know, you only wrote your words today, but if you tried to force out a thousand words, they would have been a thousand rubbish words. So, you know, try and just be nice to yourself because it's not easy. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, in, in, in a way, yeah, it was, it was an absolute godsend. And I was so happy to get it done um, by the end of the summer because in August, um, my first shoot was back up and running, you know? So I was, I was out there again in the world working, which, uh, you know, feel incredibly privileged to have done but that's because the film industry and the government had uh, come to a, an agreement pretty much before almost any other industry you know we had uh, mass testing in place and uh, strict PPE and and and, and um, safety guidelines in place before pretty much anyone I mean it made me feel awkward at times because you know my wife's a teacher and they still haven't really had the protection I think they they deserve. And the same with, you know, nurses, doctors and nurses. So there's a bit, like I'm an incredibly just privileged dude, really. <laughs> but yeah, we were up and running. So to get the first draft off before that happened was incredibly satisfying. Yeah, it, it, one of the things that I've referenced quite a lot, uh, hilariously talking to the brother of said essayist, but um, what when Zadie's... Um, book of essays intimations came out there's that one oh, essay what a book that was an amazing book and like there's that one essay where she's talking about the fear that she feels that that her partner and children are going to find out how she spends her days and i really remember i really that remember yeah i really remember feeling that because like there are parts of my days where i need to watch something on netflix there are parts of my yeah, days and also dude what's a huge part of our job a huge part of our job in inverted commas is like staring out the window you know, or like sometimes I like pick an ingrown hair in my arm, yeah, you know, nice. it's like half an hour and I'm just <laughs> like, I'm actually thinking like I'm trying to solve a, a plot <laughs> issue or do you know what I mean? I'm thinking of a gag, but that's what I'm doing. And if you walk in at that point, I've rolled up my sleeve. I'm just picking an ingrown hair in my arm as a teacher. I mean, my wife worked harder 
during the lockdown and she did when she's in school seriously longer hours or you know she walks in and I'm doing that it's just like really <laughs> yeah so yeah was, I related to that yeah it's almost like having to find that button on your laptop again that makes everything go away like you're a teenager stealing stealing a few minutes to watch pornography <laughs> on, exactly. on the family computer exactly that yeah so, so the book is, is well, by the time this comes out, the book will be out, something I said, which is yeah. uh, about a young stand-up who, who goes viral. Um, give, given that you've, you've been, like, in the public eye, you know, since you were, you know, really young and, you know, you've been performing and, and all the rest of it, was, was, was that, you know, your early start in front, in front of the microphone, was that something that kind of made you think, I want to write about a kid who just picks up a microphone and tries to find their voice? Yeah, it was kind of, um, you know, I just went by the old adage of write what you know. Um, but I, obviously I knew before I put pen to paper that I wanted to, that I was going to write for middle grade and for older kids. So I just thought, well, what are the two things I know about? You know, I know about, I, I know about being a 13 year old boy because I was one. And I know about being a stand up because I was one. So it, it was a matter of, combining those two in an accessible way so I didn't want him to be famous I didn't want him I mean, like you said he goes viral he it, it, without a spoiler he actually doesn't go viral like he <laughs> that there, there is no real success but there's a he gets very he has a brush with success that I think is the thing that perhaps grounds the story and makes it less of a fantasy it's a very real world story and I, I also knew I wanted to do that from the beginning I, I knew I didn't want any dragons I didn't want any uh, 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 portals to another universe uh, you know I, I wanted to have really real kids doing really real things but with something extraordinary in there you know but there's nothing in there that couldn't possibly happen to any kids so that was my main focus from the beginning and just keeping it grounded throughout and uh, the other thing I was determined to do was to have a big laugh on as many pages as possible if not every page and that was key do you remember the first time you picked up a microphone I mean obviously you've you know you started off as a rapper but you know there was always so much humor in in your in your raps and in, in your freestyles but do, do you remember that first yeah that first moment I mean it actually goes back really, really far. Like when I was about six years old was the first time I remember wanting to be an entertainer. Like I wanted to be on TV or on stage. I, I really recall that. Um, I either wanted to be like an actor or a milkman. Those were the two things I, I was really up for doing. And, and it, you know, it seems like a very sort of six-year-old-y Thing to think like uh, you know famous or milkman but actually I saw the two jobs as being quite similar when I was that age and I, I and looking back I, I feel the same now you know that kind of doing your own thing you're very singular like going around bringing bringing sort of joy in the form of milk and orange juice to people <laughs> um, and being a bit of a character um, so yeah like me and Zadie I remember when we were like seven or eight we we would learn sketches from television, comedy sketches, Monty Python, um, Forty Towers, Porridge, uh, Fry and Laurie, uh, whatever our dad was into really, he was a big comedy buff. And we'd like learn the lines 
and pe- perform them like you know just do two handers in, in in the living room whenever like there was an aunt and uncle around or anything bang we'd be we'd be on and uh you know zadie carried on like doing tap dance and singing and i uh, loved acting in the in the school plays so we were both little performers really uh and um yeah, any any excuse, I'd, I'd I'd love to get up in front of people and ideally make them laugh or just entertain them, like just get a round of applause. I guess we were both just really needy kids <laughs> um, in need of that vindication. Who knows? But yeah, and then yeah, as a teenager, writing rhymes, I, I just I just kept it to myself. I didn't feel confident enough to actually rap out loud because I didn't feel like street enough. You know, I looked at the, the boys in my school who rapped, you know, they were all like tough guys. And I, I didn't feel like, oh, I can't really be a part of that. But I did write rhymes. I just kept them secret. Um, and yeah, it wasn't until like my late teens and start, you start to go to, to rap clubs and they all ha- used to have battles and competitions in those days. And yeah, they eventually just plucked up the courage to, to give it a go. So probably the first time I actually like, held a mic in my hand would have been you know 17 or 18 but in terms of performing like would have been school plays when I was like seven or eight I mean and it was the same feeling I I wanted everybody to give me a round of applause you know yeah I really remember for uh, you know obviously I've been following your rap career for gone on decades now um and you were like one of the best to to do it and one of the things that I always really appreciate about one of the things I always appreciated about you, you, your your battle persona in particular was you you were never cruel and you were never like awful. You you always you always had this really good sense of the absurd, and um, you're really good at like making people taking people down, but not like making them hate you in the process. And and I thought that was yeah. such a wonderful quality that you just didn't see that much at that time. That's really kind of you to say, and also. Yeah, that was really, really important to me. And it was an instinctive decision in the battle, battling world. Because like I said, I never felt like a tough guy. I knew street guys, but I wasn't a street guy myself. Uh, and I just, you know, everything I knew about rap was like, you've got to be real. you just got to be real with it. Otherwise, you just get embarrassed. You get shown up and ridiculed. So, you know, I mean, I've always worn glasses with contacts at the minute, but, you know, in those days, I didn't have contact. I couldn't afford contacts. So I always have these rubbish, you know, NHS glasses. And it would be the first thing that people dissed every time. So I'd always be ready to make them look foolish. Oh, look, you've just been embarrassed by, like, the geekiest kid in your class, you know. Or, so, Like you said, there was real nastiness out there. I remember, like, black, black rappers, you know, being really, really, like, aggressive about the mixed race thing. Like, just, like... Like backwards racism, basically. Um, and I'd love to bury those guys. And I, I remember beating one guy and, and, and saying something along the lines of, of like how embarrassing it was that I beat him because I'd, like I'd beaten him with my white half. That wasn't even my black half that did you there. Do you know what I mean? And that, you know, the audience loved that. And it's funny, like not saying like I'm a genius or anything, but when I saw Eight Mile, that final scene where he spends all this time dissing himself and then the guy's got nothing left to say that really was my approach not with the same level of anything close to the same level of skill but that was it I'd always come out and go yep 
glasses yeah yeah whatever you know the too posh whatever like what is it do you know what I mean like I'd always come with that and people really warmed to me because they were like wow wait self-deprecating rap this is this is different um now that's like you know it's part and parcel but um and sensitive rap and all of that stuff but back then it really wasn't it was a, it was a really hard overly masculine homophobic misogynistic like aggressive world that I, that I was in uh and do, doing what I did really yeah it warmed people to me and it was the birthplace of co- live comedy for me because that gave me all the skills to be able to to make people laugh and and be um you know uh, spontaneous I, I remember um listening to an interview that you did uh where you were talking about moving into comedy and you you just started working on on a radio radio sitcom writing jokes uh, was mm. it for for Rudy's records um yeah Rudy's Rare Records a Lenny Henry vehicle yeah and um the producer was the one who actually suggested you go and try some of your stuff out in a in a stand that's exactly show. right yeah and did did you feel like you'd come home because you kind of like this is something that had been way at the start of your life and like did it did it feel like a coming home or did you did it feel like natural to you or did you have like because I you know I'm obsessed with stand-ups and I, I write a lot about mm. you know you know there was a stand-up character in my last novel my next YA oh, right. is my next YA is about a young stand-up I'm I'm fascinated by the personality of you know yeah. if you take tragedy plus time equals comedy. Um, absolutely you know, where most most um artists that you know you can have a multitude of reactions to 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 the work but a co- comedian you know the laugh the visceral laugh is what they're going for and so when yeah. they're presenting their pain to you it sort of takes a special type of person so i just wonder i wonder if like if you ever felt that thing where like that first gig goes amazingly and then you spend <laughs> the rest of the gigs chasing that first gig which is what some people yeah. told me happened yeah, no, it was completely the opposite for me. I never warmed to stand up ever um, in the 10 years that I did it. Uh, the very first gig, first two gigs were sort of pressed upon me by that producer. He just thought like I should do it because I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm already a performer. I'm already writing gags, like makes perfect sense. So he kind of formed that uh, idea of like, you know you're a rapper you, you write jokes like put the things it's unique put it together um and he was right uh i just never thought it would kick off in the way it did i mean within a year i was making a healthy living that's unheard of nine months it took me most comics it takes them you know four or five years i remember chatting to michael mcintyre back then when i was starting out and he was like what are you talking about? he was like trying to give me some advice he was like next thing you should do try and get some weekends at Jonglers or Glee. And I was like, oh yeah, Jonglers, Glee. Yeah, I do weekends there. He was like, you do weekends? Like two gigs a night and that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was like, what? But you've only been going like seven, eight months. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. That's, I thought that was how it goes. He was like, no, he said, he said it took, took me three years to get into Jonglers. So I, I, I realized I was doing something different with a new energy that people hadn't seen before because I was getting all these bookings. stuffing cash under the mattress it was crazy but um I just never stopped feeling nervous about it I never stopped hating the build-up 
to getting on stage. It's a bit, the, the, the physical equivalent, I would say, is like needing a massive poo like all day and not being allowed to go. Do you know what I mean? Just like every toilet door is closed. It's a, it's a horrible feeling in your stomach. And I, the fact that in, I never warmed to it in 10 years of doing it just made me think, maybe this isn't for you, which is bizarre because when I'm up there and I'm flying, oh man, I'm like, I'm bulletproof at times. And uh, I had so many amazing times and amazing memories, but the only thing I truly loved was that within those 20 minutes when 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 you've got them rolling and you're just riding that wave everything else about it writing it traveling um waiting to go on traveling home i hated all of that <laughs> and, and when you were starting out your your kid you, your first kid was quite young is that is that right yeah i was a youth worker and i had a baby she would have been i got on stage first time to do stand up february 2008 and uh, she was born new year's eve 2005 which means she would have been i don't know three is that right my maths is terrible but she was little and um uh, my missus was pregnant with the second one bear in mind i'm a part-time youth worker um we live in a a crappy little flat in Dalston the people be listening now going Dalston that's so trendy it it was not it was not at that time it was a shithole um and uh yeah she was a trainee teacher we were struggling man and uh this baby pressure was big um and I'd done the uh second one of these practice gigs with this producer this BBC producer at these sort of private BBC nights and convinced myself that it might be worth going into, you know, I thought there's battling in rap, there's got to be battling in comedy. And of course there was competitions, cash prizes. So I went in the biggest one called So You Think You're Funny because the prize was five grand, you know, not because I thought this is the way to start this, you know, uh, empire of, of comedy and this, this fantastic career. I just thought, Jesus, I could use five grand. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, and I remember coming home and telling my wife, like, um, I'm going to try doing this. <laughs> and imagine you're pregnant with the second, you're struggling for money and your husband's like, yeah, I'm just going to do dick jokes. Maybe that'll help. <laughs> and um, she just didn't bat an eyelid. She was like, yeah, I mean, I, I always thought you could be a, a professional performer. Like, let's go, let's go for it. Let's see what happens. You know, and... Um, by August of that year, I was in the, the final in, in Edinburgh. Uh, you know, I had, had agents buzzing around. It was, it was crazy. It was such a roller coaster of a ride. And, um, you know, uh, I, I'd like to say I got lucky, but no, I think you, you sort of make your own luck um, in, in, in show business. Uh, I put myself anywhere where people might see me, you know. And um, for it to come full circle and me to become the actor that I dreamt of being when I was six um, is not luck, really, because, you know, casting directors will be in the, in the shadows in a lot of comedy gigs, you know, um, and comedy turned into getting dramatic auditions. It's, it's, it's as simple as that, you know, um, but I worked for everything. I mean, those first couple of years, I, I, mate, I worked my ass off. I'm talking about like 
11, 12, 13 gigs a week, you know, doubling up on nights, riding around on my bicycle to get from one gig to another in London and then driving like 350 miles to get to gigs in Newcastle or Stafford, you know, get that money, die on my ass, even drive back. <laughs> I just didn't stop. Uh, but it's, it's so funny how so many comedians sort of look back, romanticise that time of like, mm where you kind of have, you know, you've got the material. And so you spend as much time as you can building up the momentum so that you are in the right place at the right time for luck in yes. inverted commas to strike. Yeah. But, uh, but it doesn't seem romantic. No, all, it's not, man. That know? first year, I don't care who you are. It's, it's so hard. I mean, like I said, I, I was sort of on a fast track, but not because I was the greatest comedian. It was because I was so different. You got to bear in mind that I loved comedy but I was raised on sitcoms. That's what I loved. Zadie as well. Like I never watched stand-up before I did stand-up. I still don't watch it. I've never really been a huge fan of stand-up. Um, obviously, I got to know all the great, great, greatest stand-ups in the in the contemporary stand-up world from working here in America and Canada and Australia, New Zealand, you know. Um, and they're all amazing. Like, they do blow me away. But when I got into it, I think I had seen Peter Kay and I'd, I'd listened to uh, Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor on, on where my mum had the vinyls, you know? So like that's, that was my stand up for education. So I think when I arrived, I didn't arrive fully formed on stage at all by any stretch of the imagination, but my rhythm, my, my cadence, everything was completely different. You know, when you watch a stand-up, you watch a young stand-up and they're, you know, they're funny, they're fine, they're professional, but they, they've got that stand-up sound, do you know what I mean? And then I turned around and he said the most middle-class thing I've ever heard in my life. You know, they've just got this, you know, like when a dude becomes a radio DJ and suddenly they're talking like this, we'll see you after the break. And you're like, why are you talking like that? Why are you suddenly talking like that? So I just went up and talked like me. And then obviously with the rap, people just never seen the shit before. It was just completely new. And I think that's what fast tracked me, you know. But also you your your rapping style is very naturalistic. So, you know, you've probably yeah, absolutely. Built, built up the ability to kind of be yourself in very constrained terms, like because you have to still yeah. be able to hit the beat. Yeah, absolutely. So like everything was um sort of scientifically created and, and there was a rhythm to every 20 minutes I wrote it was precision like German engineering man like how I would go from talking into suddenly rapping and I used to love watching people's faces where they wait a minute what what is happening why is he suddenly talking in rhythm and like you say I'd get my character across and I think that's what I mean I've I've had a long uh side career in 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 advertising and writing copy for adverts and it, that was the game born out of stand-up because i think ad execs people like that agency dudes would be in the crowd maybe just for fun maybe they were fishing who knows but if you see someone who's able in 30 seconds to get a, a, a complex point across with humor with human character uh, uh and, and and humanity to a room of a thousand strangers what does that remind you of you know that reminds you of adverts you know the, the challenge of advertising is to do exactly that to connect 
with a massive audience with your idea. See, the true genius of, of stand-up comedy is, is not making people laugh. The joke is almost neither here nor there. The genius is in narrowing the gap of um, understanding. So, you know, if, if the setup is, is, is one side of the canyon and, and, and the laugh is the other side, you know, the, the joke is, is that bridge of understanding. You're, you're bringing the audience to a concept. So when people laughed, to me, from a create, creator's point of view, it wasn't so much that I cared that they found me funny. It was that they understood where I was taking them. You know, that laugh means you comprehend me. That comprehension is there. So therefore, you can translate that to a 30 second, one minute advert. I'm gonna make you who doesn't know anything about me comprehend what this product is, is gonna do and how it's gonna work for you. And you're gonna enjoy it, you know? And that's that really has helped with the mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did wonder whether like part of you is like, I never wanna do that perfect cup of tea wrap thing ever ever again. But the, the, way, the reason it works is because it's so you know you don't have to do much work to bring the audience with you on this thing that pretty much everyone in the audience will have some awareness of that so that the joke then becomes about riffing on the different the different expectations that each of those audience members will have for it absolutely absolutely you know it is the albatross around my neck that's <laughs> but then at yeah. the same time how can i be pompous or uh, uh you know, dismissive of it when it's also laid the foundations for everything that I've done since, you know, just that simple thing. I wrote it in maybe eight to 10 minutes thinking it was just another silly rap, but I wrote it for Russell Howard. I got that gig and I thought I better have some new shit to, to do. Uh, and I wrote it for that and tried it out in a couple of clubs and it killed. So I was quite confident. I wrapped it to Russell. He was like, that's hilarious. Put it on the show and 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 the rest is history um but uh you know that is the bedrock of so many things i've done since like i think it might be safe to say i think i might be unembargoed now been in a, a nda like contract of silence for a long time on this but there's a, a massively successful international advert for for just eat with snoop dog and uh, i wrote that i wrote that for snoop he, he learned my my lyrics and and, and that's one of the even though it's an advert it's probably one of the most proudest things i've ever done and i don't think that would have happened without the t-rap so you know um god bless the t-rap in some ways in other ways i it angers me profoundly because number one it's so silly and i obviously like every creator you see yourself as this kind of intellectual i've got way more to say but what annoys me much more than that is that I wrote and performed it for the BBC. So therefore, it's, it's the most popular thing that I've got that exists online. Millions and millions and millions of views. God knows how many now, eight, ten, who knows? I don't, I don't check these things, but a lot. And I have never made a penny off of that song because it existing on a BBC show means that they've always owned the rights. <laughs> That's pretty depressing. Shit, but I've got Snoop, so they can kiss that, my ass. That is fucking amazing. <laughs> I did not know yeah. that. Um, no one knows. 
that's a that's a worldwide exclusive i might oh. get sued tomorrow I'm, I'm pretty sure it's okay to say now um, well you know if we get in the daily mail then i could really use those podcast listens <laughs> uh, those hate listens um this mother's day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from blue nile whether it's for your mom a mother figure or yourself as a mom find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I just want to sort of move on to talking about your life as a dad now, given that this that's mm. the, the the thing of the podcast. What 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 kind I don't mean this in an accusatory way, even though the question is framed in a very accusatory way. <laughs> what, what what kind of dad are you? Are you are you fun dad? Are you disciplined dad? Are you somewhere in between dad? Or are you um yeah, yeah, I'll do, I'll do that, I'll do that, and then forget to do it, Dad. Or, 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 or <laughs> I'm definitely or not the. I'm definitely not the third of those. I think I'm both the first two. I'm, I'm incredibly hands-on. Always have been. Um, not so much because it's like, oh, this is the kind of dad I'm going to be. It's more happened out of necessity because my job is very silly, and my wife's job is very, very serious, uh, and and all in all in I mean if you're a teacher it's just I know people think oh yeah you're on these holidays what are you moaning about you finish work at 3.30 you don't that job's like 24 hours a day 365 days a year never that was never made clearer to me than in lockdown like their emails were given out so parents would just email you going actually I think you should teach like this I don't think this works I think you should do it it's like fuck off <laughs> do you know what I mean so she doesn't, she doesn't have the luxury of going, actually, I think this week I'll just muse over uh, whether or not my next project will be a book of poetry or perhaps I'll create a new hour of stand-up or maybe I'll just think about it for another week after that. Maybe perhaps I need two weeks. Perhaps I need to, re- to have a retreat, you know? <laughs> like, she doesn't get that. She doesn't get that luxury. So what that's meant over the years... Uh, in considering like when I when the first one was born when my first daughter was born I was 
working, but I was part, I was a part-time youth worker. So even then I had time. I've always had more free and flexible time than her. That's just the fact of the matter. And what that's led to is I've always been a hands-on dad. I've always been the one that's more involved. I've always done more of the school runs because she's not available. Um, I've always dealt with the teacher, their teachers. Um, I've always been the one who organizes the play dates. Um, I do all the taxiing. I'm full, like I'm fully involved with both kids. I'm not saying that my wife isn't, of course. It's just different access. I, I like I'm around for emergencies. Like I'm that guy. Um, so yeah, and and on top of that, yeah, I am a I am a bit of a disciplinarian, but I love having fun with the kids. The thing is, if you do my job, you have to be in touch with um, your inner child. You have to be. Sounds wanky, but it's true. Like children know how to play. Children are artists, you know, even if they don't know it themselves. They're natural artists, all of them. And then at some point, we beat all their creativity out of them with how shit the world is. You know, I mean, I can't wait to read, you know, your brown baby book because uh, I think that that would be a big part of it without trying to second guess what you've written. Like it's a depressing world. <laughs> and yet kids are just oh man especially the little ones the things they say the way they view the world it's just it's incredible and it's it's beautiful and it's inspiring so I think the great performers the great writers the great artists they hang on to something of that um you know it's not about being childish it's about being childlike um I think Michael Jackson said the same thing obviously that's tainted now with everything that happened with him but I think it's fair to say even with all the horrible side of of, of MJ he definitely did he, he definitely did creatively retain that childlike wonder you know I always remember when he did the, the famous Motown 25 and, and uh, showed the moonwalk to the world for the first time Fred Astaire like his jaw dropped in the front row you know what the hell is this he was wearing just a jacket that he'd found in in his nan's wardrobe it was just like a sparkly old lady jacket but with the lights at the venue down on it it made him look magical like otherworldly like only a kid would think of doing something like that you know like us like if you're if you're like i don't know a, a lesser performer than michael jackson you're probably thinking, let me speak to my stylist or let me speak to this label. Maybe they can get me this $5,000 jacket that I can wear in this big show or for the Oscars or the Met Ball or whatever it is. MJ was just like raiding his, his nan's closet like a little kid would to put on a, a show in the living room. Uh, like That kind of thing is, is, is what I mean, you know, holding on to that childlike creativity. Not easy to do, but... To be a dad and to be in show business is 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 great because it's it does two really fundamental things. One, it grounds you. You can't be like a crazy aloof superstar. You just can't. No matter how famous I get, I've still got to go to like parents' evening. Do you know what I mean? I don't believe in private schools, so I'm not going to be at the same school as the Beckhams. Do you know what I mean? I'm going to be in a state school dealing with state school shit. No matter how famous I am, right? So it, it grounds you. You can't just hide in your mansion. You've got to be out there in the world. And then secondly, it keeps you constantly connected 
to that brilliant, innocent, wide-eyed energy that I think you need to create. So it's it's a beautiful thing being a dad as as an entertainer, but it's it's not without its its issues as well, of course. Yeah, and and I like what you're saying about that childlike thing because it, I think it also helps when you're when you're having to have difficult conversations with your kids about the way the world world works. I really remember. I know I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but like my my daughter, I live in Bristol. My daughter goes to a school that's associated with Edward Colston. She's six years old. She's coming back asking questions about Colston, about the Bristol bus boycotts and everything. And I remember at the time thinking I'm going to have to explain racism to her and as I yeah and as I was explaining it to her I she she just didn't understand she was just like I don't get what you're talking about mm-hmm. this makes no sense. sense to me and I yeah and I realized that I was kind of projecting my cynicism and my jadedness and my world weariness at right. professionally having the conversation for like however many years onto this poor kid and I just needed to look at the world through her eyes and it was a really grounding moment mm. for me because I was like this is how you talk about this stuff. You explain the world to your kids as it makes sense to them, not as it makes sense. Absolutely, to you. absolutely. It's one. It's one of the classic parental mistakes that we we all make. Um, and the fact that children don't understand racism and it has to be explained to them is is profound. You know, in in that they're like, but what do you mean? Why is that person different from me? They're just you know, we both like apples or whatever it is. And then there's beauty in that. What's fascinating is when you get into my zone. My girls are teenagers now um they're more woke than me do you know what I mean like I thought I was the liberal do you know what I'm saying like they're way more woke than me like so they pull me up on stuff all the time dad you can't say that like it'd be like oh spaz and they'd be like dad that's really offensive to to, to people with disabilities <laughs> you're like oh shit and I'm thinking like when I was their age it used to be standard like if something rubbish you say it was gay I mean and that's like crazy to think about now Right. And all, all the stuff we, we, we used to do, it was like a much less PC world and um, <laughs> shout out to PC world. Um, and, you know, some people might say, yeah, it was better because there was more honesty. And uh, maybe there's something in that. But I think there's also something in respect and understanding difference and, and celebrating difference. And my kids do that naturally. They're concerned about the environment. Um, one's a vegetarian, one's a vegan. You know that's not coincidental. Um, I never, none of, I don't, I don't think I knew what a vegan was when I was when I was fifteen, sixteen. Like, I don't think I'd even heard of it. So, you know, it's a different planet for kids now. Kids are, are much more responsible. Responsible. Also, like when I was fifteen, sixteen, like my my eldest daughter's age, I was getting quite fucked up, man. You know, I would drink cider till I puked, smoke cheap hash. Like, I can't imagine her. Like, she, I'm sure she will at, like, uni or whatnot, but the, 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 the age has moved for that stuff. Like, all the 15, 16-year-olds I know are super healthy, man. That, well, that's what I was just about to ask you. Do, you. do you see them replicating mistakes that you made as a teenager and part of you has to be like, I'm just going to hold it down because I remember what it was like at the time, or do you... Yeah, I just think it'll be, for them, it'll be a little bit later. Obviously, they're girls as well, so it's slightly different. Um the younger one 13 year old she was um out campaigning for sexual safety for 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 women the other day you know um it's a real concern for them so for girls there's that that 
that extra thing they have to worry about that we this never even crossed our minds. Well, well, of course I'm going to walk down that street. What are you talking about? You know. Whereas for girls, they got to think, wait, hold on a minute. You know, which obviously is is a uh, an imbalance that now looking at better late than never, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I think it will take them a couple more years to do the dumb shit that I did, but they will do it. Um, and at that point, somehow, yeah, I have to find the maturity to go. Here's why that's problematic, but you know, I'm not gonna. I don't want to be like so soft that you know they just go wild, but um, I definitely want to be able to go. Hmm, interesting. You know, I did that, and here's what <laughs> here's what I benefited. You know, here's here's what happened to me. Like I'm, I'm there's a part of me that's almost looking forward to that conversation. We, we're we're quite open with each other, and we talk about difficult stuff all the time. We've you know we've had the sex conversations and. And all of that, like I try and have like drink and drug conversations with them, but they're just not interested in that. They're like, why would you do that? Like if they've ever had an inkling that I've been smoking, it's just like, oh my God, they don't talk to me for like weeks. It's, it's mental. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really funny. But yeah, I, I hadn't realized that you were, you were, um, you had two girls. I've got, I've got two girls and part, part of the book. Oh, I, right. I, I try to explore it's an issue as well right yeah so like in part of the book I try to explore like things that I as a male from you know who grew up in a patriarchal environment you know things that I should be mm. thinking about or unlearning or like you know considering when it comes to raising girls and it took me down like these really weird internet rabbit holes of like these lists of how dad daddies and daughters should be like these really sort of twee lists. And actually it, yeah. just, it just made me think we really need to think about how we raise boys because so much of like, exactly. What, what you put all reading. this responsibility on girls. You need to think about this. You need to think about that. You need to act like this. You need to act like that. What about boys taking that risk factor away because they're the ones that provide it, you know, the biggest killer of women in the world is men. Right? So let's just, let's just hold, hold our horses there. Like the education needs to go in the other direction, you know, and we, and in a way you and I should know that instinctively from being Brown, from being victims of racism, we should know that we're sick and just in the same way that we're sick and tired of having to explain why this is offensive or having to alter our behavior to be this kind of acceptable face of brownness. No, the education needs to be on the other side. And it's, it's very, very similar, I think, with, with, with boys and girls, but even more intense because it that really is a universal problem. Doesn't matter if there's no black people in your country, like there's men and women, you know? Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a huge, huge one, but it's nice that that conversation's being had and it's, promising to see you know my two teenage girls like being a part of that conversation like that's that's the mainstream conversation now yeah one of the things that really struck me uh from my years as a youth worker which finished like what three years ago i definitely found that teenagers now are having much more progressive conversations than i was like you know well, I think yes. probably the same Absolutely. age um that, that than we were having but a lot of it is because the language that they now possess or the language that's much more um mainstream like you know words like intersectionality or um 
uh, what what have you like there's so much more there's so much more in common parlance than there used to be and so i feel like yeah. a, lot, a lot of the that confusion that i probably had as a teenager was because i just didn't possess the ability to have conversations about this stuff yeah absolutely and and i really remember as well like being their age and experiencing racism and thinking it's probably best just not to not to flag this up do you know what i mean which is just so sad like but that was that was a big part of the British experience for, for, for immigrants. You know, you sort of think it's wrong. It feels horrible. I feel horrible, but I'm not going to kick up a stink about it because it's just going to make me even more of an outcast, you know, sad. Um, and uh, the less that happens, that's a, that's obviously a great thing. Also, I was a bit of a dick when I was <laughs> when I was a teenager compared yeah, to. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, we, we were dicks, man. Like you know, boys, boys, boys are just like the most sort of uh, uh, entitled little shits. You know, that's just because that's like you say, it's a pat- patriarchy. We didn't even know what that word was, but we benefited from it massively. Uh, okay, so we're just coming to the end. So I've just got two final questions for you. Then I'll. I'll... Okay. Get, get on with your day um so the first is like I, I think you've talked about this a little bit but um so what, one of the central questions that i i have for everyone is um what how, how do you raise your kids to be joyful and boundless in a world that feels so bleak and that you may feel mm. quite sad and angry about yeah i mean that's a huge question and it's it's one that keeps me awake at night um most nights um my thing is I constant I'm constantly talking to them and everything I find funny, especially now that they're old enough that I don't have to filter stuff. Like even if it's rude, like if everything I find funny, I share with them. And I'm not sure anyone can make me laugh these days. Like, like my kids do that. They just crack me up and and I fit whenever they do, I feel like it's a little dad win because I feel like I sowed that seed of like, because, you know, like girls being funny, it feels like another thing that's for too long has been um, restricted, you know, like a girl being fun. That's not feminine. Do you know what I mean? Like a girl making fart jokes, like that's not feminine, you know? So like I've, I've really hard for as long as I can remember from when they were really little to just like celebrate silliness. And um, I, I make a roast every Sunday, like religiously now, like every Sunday we have a roast Um, partly because I love roasts, but mainly because it's very sort of munch and go. Do you know what I mean? It might be two of us. It might be three of us. Even if it's four of us, one of us is in a rush. Mum's got work to do or I've got lines to learn or the kids got homework and it's sort of like fly by night. People are on their phones. The Sunday roast is like no phones. Everyone's facing each other. It's an event. You know, we'll play a, like a board game or something afterwards or watch a movie afterwards. and Everyone looks forward to it. And that's when we have our proper kind of like, let's all have a proper catch up. And there's always a laugh to be had there. So for me, it's like, we all know the world is, 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 is a messed up place. And, and, and uh, you know, the, the saddest thing for me is that the world is inhabited by two types of people, you know, people who 
just want to get along and get by and, and 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 live in peace and people who for some reason don't you know and and it, it seems like it's always been split into those two and the people who don't there's loads of advantages they can take because they don't care about the well-being of others so they tend to be the people who end up with quite a lot of power money and influence because if you don't give a shit imagine what you could do if you didn't give a shit if you didn't give a shit you could go you'd go and what would you do like i don't know maybe cheat on your wife steal shit from other people uh you know focus on just things that benefit you personally but if you're one of the other people then you're you're always thinking about how your actions affect others uh and those are the only people that i really want around me and those are the humans that i've tried to raise and what has happened is my kids have become way better people than me so they're a huge inspiration for me and all i need to do now is just keep showing them that i'm there like when life gets scary like i'm there i can't solve every problem but i do know that i am a, i'm a hero to them and i'm i'm going to keep trying to live up to that like i don't see that as this impossible thing i know it's really hard because we are their first role models and when we do things like you know when you're like pissed off and you take it out on the kids it's like the worst feeling ever like you're like you hate yourself for that but it's natural and you've got to turn around which is what i always do take a breath even if it's the next day and i've finally settled down turn around apologize tell them look daddy's not perfect but and i'm not going to try and be perfect but i am going to always be there that's the first job just fucking be around you know a lot of dads aren't so you know that's the first thing be available every screw up you know like what's the first thing they tell you when you when you're on that third pint and then things start to get deep oh my dad just wasn't really around and feel like he gave a shit about me and what i was doing you're like oh yeah well that explains a lot because you are a dick you know <laughs> so you know that's just the first thing just be available you know they'll find something you'll be amazed when you're an old man and your grown up daughter is is saying oh i just really felt my dad was preoccupied with something else and that made me go and do this thing you'd be like wow i really thought i was putting the hours in they'll find something that that sort of disturbed them but that's that you know that can if they're raised with love and confidence they'll turn that into a little superpower of their own just like we did you know so it's about keeping on keeping on in uh, in, in in a world that clearly doesn't support love um doesn't respect love it's about carrying on believing that love is the supreme power you know um no amount of horribleness you know look at look at israel right now northern ireland looks like it's kicking off again um greed selfishness around the globe murder uh racism misogyny all these horrible negative things that are all pointless right they're all based on things that were just made up by some douchebag thousands of years ago for his own gain probably you know love is the one that i find unquestionable and there'll be 
some knob listening to this thinking, oh, he's just a hippie. That's why he's never going to be a proper success. Good. If that's what you want to call me, that's what I am. I don't care. Like, lo love is, is my only master. So, yeah, just keep that going. And like I say, I'm, me and you are the same age, but I guess I'm, what, like a good seven, eight, nine years ahead of you in parenting terms. Uh, so I can tell you with some authority, it fucking works, man. Like it works. Love, time, attention, gentleness, smiles and jokes. It, it works, man. It makes good people. And we have to, Nikesh. You know why? Because we're like those guys in Lord of the Rings or one of those films where it's like there's eight of us and there's like a billion orcs. And we're like, how do we win this battle? The only way to win it is to keep having more of the good the good guys you know we create some good but we don't really need any more human beings so ideally i would say adopt it's the same with dogs and cats like try and adopt but if you can't adopt and you really do want to get pregnant cool just make them good guys man because there's like seven of us against the orcs you know we need some more soldiers <laughs> ben bailey smith thank you so much pleasure Thank you so much to Ben Bailey-Smith for coming onto the podcast. Thank you for Bloomsbury and to his management for helping us to find time in his incredibly busy schedule. And thank you to the listener for coming back for season two. I mean, if this is your first episode, please check out the first season, which features Jay Sean, Himesh Patel, Nadia Hussain, Mira Sayal, loads more. There was also season one, episode one last week with Shobna Gulati. It's a free podcast, so do support me and Ben by buying our books. And please, please rate this podcast, like it, subscribe to it, wherever you get them. See you next week, my friends. Who are we going to have next week? Safraz Manzura next week. Goodbye. For goodbye, my brown babies. Goodbye, my brown babies. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.